SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from fresh water to salt water. Yama, welcome to NITV Radio. I am Bertrand Tungandami. Coming up in your program this Monday, the 12th of February, we'll have some current affairs stories shared with us by NITV's NORA program, including news of victims of Upla, the failed funeral insurer, will be, able to, will be able to access compensation, as well as damning findings of the Productivity Commission and the Closing the Gap Agreement, and more. Also in the program, we spoke to David Cook, an indigenous writer, director, actor, and producer, talking about his debut feature film, Heart of the Man, a drama film that explores issues of identity, family, and grief. Heart of the Man has a predominantly indigenous or LGBT cast and will premiere in Brisbane on February 28th before being rolled out nationally throughout the year. On NITV Radio today, we also look at findings of a new report on how participation in sports can have a positive impact on students' academic outcomes. All these stories and more coming to you on NITV Radio after the latest news. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, a new partnership agreement announced to close the gap in New South Wales. A damning review into offshore detention contracts is released. And Egypt warns Israel it may suspend the Camp David peace treaty if Israeli troops enter Rafah. The New South Wales government has signed a closing the cup partnership agreement to help improve health, education and social outcomes for First Nations peoples. The agreement has been signed by New South Wales Premier Chris Means, the New South Wales Coalition of Aboriginal Peak Organisations and Local Government New South Wales. The partnership agreement addresses the first reform priority in the Closing the Gap National Agreement, the establishment of formal partnerships and shared decision-making. John Lear, co-chair of the Coalition of Aboriginal Peak Organisations New South Wales, says achieving this level of partnership requires a sustained commitment to overhauling government processes around decisions relating to First Nations peoples. The progress made across the last three years is indicative of what we can achieve with legitimate and ongoing engagement from all parties, and I look forward to continuing to break ground in this space. New South Wales is the second jurisdiction after South Australia to formalise a state-based partnership under Closing the Gap and the first to involve local government. 
a new government, a new a new South Wales government support program for women who live outside major cities, are indigenous, veterans, or face other challenges. Finding work has been extended. A new round of grants has been made available under the state's Return to Work Pathways program, providing up to $2 million to support women to train for and get jobs. A damning review has revealed that companies suspected of bribery and money laundering secured substantial government contracts through the nation's offshore processing system. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill released the report by former ASIO boss Dennis Richardson. Dennis Richardson's review is released by our government today and it is an extraordinary document. This extraordinary document dictates a decade of uh, contracting between the Home Affairs Department under Peter Dutton, which saw hundreds of millions of dollars potentially funnelled into companies which were using that money to undertake criminal wrongdoing. We are talking here about things like the trafficking of drugs, the trafficking of human beings, uh, the subversion of sanctions against Iran and other criminal activities. Now, this report raises some very important questions for Peter Dutton. This is a system that he set up under the Home Affairs Department. The reviewer did not find any evidence of ministerial involvement in the regional processing contracts or procurement decisions. The federal government says employers are expected to exercise their common sense when applying the right to disconnect workplace reforms. Following criticisms arguing the reforms may bring an end to flexible working arrangements, Federal Minister Tanya Plibersek told Seventh Sunrise that the laws are about making sure you are not on call 24 hours a day. The opposition says it will scrap the workplace reforms if the coalition returns to government after choosing not to vote against amendments that consider breaches of the reform a criminal matter. Federal MP Mark Thistleswait says the government will make those amendments this week. Um, the, the opposition refused to allow some sensible amendments to that legislation in the Senate last week when the government attempted to move amendments that removed penalties from that legislation. The opposition refused to grant leave to the government to move those amendments. As a consequence, we will be fixing that legislation this week and moving those amendments. There are fresh calls for Labor to axe negative gearing. The Greens will push Labor to reconsider the tax concessions as a condition of their support for the help to buy housing legislation. Negative gearing allows investors to deduct losses from assets against income most commonly used for property investments. Greens leader Adam Bandt says negative gearing is unfair for first home buyers. Labor's scheme helps 0.2% of people who want to buy a home while pushing up prices for everyone else. You shouldn't have to win a lottery to buy your first home. The Greens will push Labor to axe these billions of dollars in tax handouts to wealthy property moguls that are denying millions of renters the chance to buy their home. Egypt has warned it may suspend its peace treaty with Israel if Israeli troops enter Gaza's densely populated border town of Rafah. The threat arose after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu deemed sending troops to Rafah necessary to win the four-month war against Hamas. 
over half of Gaza's 2.3 million population has sought refuge in Rafah, crowding into sprawling tent camps and United Nations-run shelters near the border. Mr. Netanyahu has told U.S. network ABC civilians in Rafah could flee north to areas that have been cleared by Israeli army. Well, Rafah is a a very small percentage of uh, Gaza, and I think it's about 10 percent or 15 percent. I mean, the estimates... Uh, The area north of Gaza that has already been cleared. No, well, the the areas that we've cleared north of Rafah are uh, plenty of areas there, but uh, we are working out a detailed plan to do so. Iran is marking the 45th anniversary of its Islamic revolution. Thousands of people have marched through highly decorated streets and major squares. In the capital city, Tehran, crowds have carried placards with death to America and death to Israel printed on them and burnt the flags of these two countries. The military has shown off some of its missiles and a paratrooper has jumped from a plane carrying a Palestinian flag. The celebrations are being held amidst tight security following an attack one month ago by IS in central Iran that left at least 95 people dead. Iran blames this attack on the U.S. and Israel. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley says Donald Trump's statement that he would encourage Russia to attack NATO is irresponsible. A rally in the state of South Carolina at a rally in the, state, in the southern state of Carolina, Mr. Trump said that he'd go as far as to encourage Russia to attack any NATO member country who had not made sufficient financial contributions to the alliance. The chief executive of one of Nigeria's largest banks is believed to have died in a nighttime helicopter crash in the desert in the United States over the weekend. Herbert Wigwe, the chief executive of Access Bank, was among the six people on board the helicopter. All aboard perished in the accident that occurred in the desert in the western state of Nevada, not far from the border with California. The crash is initially proving to be difficult to investigate as the helicopter did not have a cockpit flight recorder or a data recorder and was not required to have these. Michael Graham, one of the one from the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board, says the weather may have played a role in the accident, but the remoteness of the location means this can't be confirmed as yet. It was reported by witnesses that there was rain with some wintry mix. We currently have uh, a meteorologist working on our team, and we are working to analyze and get the exact weather conditions at that time. Of course, that's... Uh, out in the middle of the desert, so we'll have to find the closest uh, reporting stations nearby to be able to give any accurate information as far as the weather was at the scene. And to sport, Australia's teenage cricketers have emulated their seniors by beating India to become champions of the world. Hugh Wapkin's side lifted the Under-19 World Cup at the South African venue of Benoni with a comprehensive 17-run win over the reigning champs. After compiling 7-53 to of their 50 overs, the Australians, with four young fast bowlers and the spin of Ralph McMillan, bowled out India's previously unbeaten side for 174 of 43.5 overs.
And now having a look at the weather around the country, Broome, partly cloudy, 33, Perth, sunny, 34, Adelaide, same forecast, 38, Melbourne, sunny, 35, Hobart, partly cloudy, 28, Albury-Wodonga, sunny, 33, Canberra, mostly sunny, 30 degrees, Wollongong, similar conditions, 27, Sydney, mostly sunny, 29, Newcastle, same forecast, 29, Brisbane, a shower or two, 30 degrees, Townsville, mostly sunny, 32, Keynes, similar conditions, 32, Alice Springs, partly sunny, 36, Darwin, showers and a possible storm, 31 degrees, and the Torres Strait Islands, light rain and 29 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. Welcome back. I'm Petron Tungandame and you're listening to NITV Radio, broadcasting from now on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. Coming up next, conversation with David Cook, an Indigenous writer, director, actor and producer. And he'll be talking to us about his debut feature film, Heart of the Man, a movie that explores issues of identity, family and grief. As you'll hear, the new drama has a predominantly Indigenous or LGBT cast and will premiere in Brisbane on February 28th before being rolled out nationally throughout the rest of the year. On NITV Radio today, we also look at findings of uh, a new report showing how participation in sports can have a positive impact on students' academic outcomes. But first, some current affairs stories are shared with us by NITV's NOLA program. NOLA delivers the news that you need to know from a unique Indigenous perspective. The key national agreement to address indigenous disadvantage is destined to fail without fundamental change. That's the message from the Productivity Commission in a scathing new report on closing the gap. Consecutive federal governments from both sides of both sides of politics have promised their policies will make a difference. But community-controlled organizations who've long warned of problems say they've now been vindicated. Emma Kellaway reports. It's the result of 15 years' worth of political pledges. Well, without change, um, the gap will not be closed in our view. That's the conclusion of the Productivity Commission's first three-yearly review of government action on the Closing the Gap Agreement. Measures focusing on increasing life expectancy, reducing overrepresentation in prisons and improving access to education and employment, all falling behind. Uh, there are too many instances where... Governments will come to the table with a predetermined outcome or solution and expect that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will agree to that. For those working for the National First Nations housing body, it's a way of working they're all too familiar with. The government does give us a lot of their time, but often it feels like they're listening to what we're saying and we're, we're advising them, but then they're going to make whatever decision they want to make. So power is about decision-making. It isn't just about a seat at the table. For the minister responsible for the Indigenous Affairs portfolio, it's a sobering reality to face. Much of what was in there, to me, was not surprising. But what exactly that means going forward is yet to be heard. All governments at all levels need to lift their game if we're going to change the trajectory for Aboriginal children into the future. 
Afternoon, folks. Others calling for a complete overhaul. The relationship needs to be shifted. The resources, the money needs to be given to the Aboriginal community control sector. Closing the gap should be abolished. We should be talking about treaty and truth-telling in this country. For those facing the front line of closing the gap in their communities, what's needed is clear. Try harder. This wasn't meant to be easy. If it was easy, you wouldn't be trying hard enough. So what we need now is real grunt. Power needs to be shared. I think that's a major one. We cannot stagnate on this as a nation. Start actioning and uh, all of those recommendations and implementations. Let's get on with it. As it stands, just four of the 19 national socioeconomic targets are on track, with a further four trending backwards. The next Closing the Gap report is expected to be handed down next week. Emma Kellaway, NITV News. A tiny island of the northeast coast of the Northern Territory is welcoming a new program to reduce crime. It's a collection of solutions that we see traditional law considered in sentencing and the opening of a new treatment facility operating on country. NITV's Leticia Lemke travelled to Grote Island, about 630 kilometres east of Darwin, on an anti-government chartered plane for this story. Nestled in bushland on Groot Island's Marble Point, this new facility has been built to change lives. Today is a very historical day for us. It's finally bringing what we fought for all those years ago. With just weeks until opening, construction is continuing at this new Anandiliakwa Healing Centre. Some of the most influential stakeholders and lawmakers in the Northern Territory have come to view the site. It's something elders have been lobbying for for decades. We feel like we're working together and helping each other for the future to go on and bringing our people home from the prison. This is the first time I'm a part of myself to be working with the detested group. The 32-bed facility is an alternative to custody. Built with funding from land council, governments and philanthropic donors, it will offer a broad range of programs from addiction and trauma treatment to courses in literacy. New law and justice groups will work with judges on sentencing to include pathways to these programs and to consider traditional law. The community will come up with some of the solutions that they think are going to work for that person and for the community. So it might be um, a special kind of community work where they repay the community uh, for something that they've damaged or something that they've stolen. Elders believe making Anandiliakwa people accountable to traditional law will reduce crime and empower local leadership. As we move through that dark cloud of the failed referendum, it is initiatives like the law and justice groups, like the community courts, like the healing centres and alternatives to custody that reinstate the hope and aspiration that many Aboriginal Territorians have been searching for. And that is a commitment that we will not walk away from. The Northern Territory Government says it's committed to empowering other remote Aboriginal communities like this one, with alternative to custody models being mapped out for the Big Rivers region and Central Australia. The Aboriginal Justice Agreement that these projects sit under is yet to be fully funded, but the Attorney-General says he remains committed to the objectives. In Anurugu, Letitia Lemke, NITV News. Thousands of First Nations people ripped off by disgraced insurer Yupla, previously known as the Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund, will soon be able to access compensation under a new government support program. 
For decades, the insurance company made millions selling funeral policies, taking payments through Centrelink while targeting mob in regional and remote areas before its collapse in 2022. Emma Kelloe has the details. Sad news and sorry business is such an important part of our culture. Ads targeted at First Nations families. For decades, the funeral fund took thousands of dollars from mob seeking insurance for end-of-life arrangements. Despite a constant flow of complaints, it continued to operate until its collapse in March 2022, leaving many out of pocket and without cover. They were devastated that the company wasn't Aboriginally owned. They thought and believed, they felt misled, they felt harmed. They were also devastated by the fact that they thought the company was a good company because it was allowed on Centrepay and on Centrelink. Today, a welcomed sign of relief after almost two years of uncertainty. We had a responsibility to make sure uh, that people who were dreadfully affected uh, have been, uh, have and will receive payments. A $97 million support package from the federal government starting from July this year. Up to 13,000 people stand to benefit from the scheme, which applies to anyone who held an active policy with UPLA on or after the 1st of August 2015. There will be the capacity for people to reinvest in uh, a low-cost funeral scheme or take a cash payment that will be their decision. Financial counselling will also be made available. The program set to run for two years. It's going to allow them to stop hurting and make a choice of a funeral product that they can move forward with and have faith in. Emma Kellaway, NITV News. And that's all for the stories shared with us by NITV's NOLA program. NOLA is a current affairs program that delivers the news that you need to know from a unique Indigenous perspective. Time for a break. When we come back, we explore Heart of the Man, a new Australian drama by Indigenous writer, director, actor and producer David Cook. Stay tuned. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Next, a peek into the making of Heart of the Man, a non-compromising tale of boxing, family and identity. NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook. Time to talk about a new Australian drama, Heart of the Man, that will be premiering in Brisbane on the 28th of February. The movie is described as tough, yet uncompromising. To explore Heart of the Man, I'm joined by uh, director, actor and producer David Cook. David, welcome to NITV Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Very, very excited to be talking with you. Yeah, you're not only the director and producer, you also play one of the key roles. What was the initial spark or idea that led you to the creation of this film? Yeah, I think I've, I've always been drawn to boxing films. You know, that, that story of the underdog is something that I've loved. This story was very much one that's close to home. So a lot of my life stories is sort of bleeding through the characters. So when I decided to to make a feature film, I felt it was you know, something that I needed to do as opposed to something that I wanted to do. So, you know, it was only right to make Heart of the Man and, and talk about, you know, this story and my life story through there. So the spark really came from just a yearning to, to tell my story and, and sort of be honest with myself 
for my for my uh, debut feature film. The movie is not just about boxing. It's a movie that uh, delves into other social issues and uh, issues of identity and love and uh, so many things wrapped into this movie. Yeah, that's right. We sort of, um, you know, we have the boxing elements in there, but it's very much a story about identity and grief and acceptance. And um, it's a very human story so you know we have um you know first nations characters like our mob and they're represented in um, lgbt characters that are you know all linked to stories and, and um parts of my life you know although it is boxing it's very much a story of you know identity and and following your path and being true to sort of your heart's desire and what you love. Yeah, the movie has a predominantly indigenous and LGBT cast with uh, Parker Lido and yourself uh, playing the main characters. I had the privilege of uh, previewing the movie and I can say the acting is fantastic, really, really very, very powerful. But can you tell us about uh, your casting process and uh, what you're looking for from uh, your cast? So, you know, doing some acting myself, you're always working with different talent on productions. And um, thankfully, I'd worked with most of my my actors before. So when I was writing the film, I almost was writing with them in mind. And then once we started auditioning, they were the, the sort of first people who, who got the script. And thankfully, you know, they were really excited by it. They were all Queensland talent. So it's an all Queensland production. So the casting process really sort of started internally with people I'd worked uh, for, people I'd worked with. So you already have that trust and rapport as, as an actor. I'd worked with Parker on an independent feature before. So when you've acted with someone, you, you've been vulnerable with them. You, you've sort of emotionally you know, invested in them. So you, you're already in a safe place. For this story, thankfully... I'd already worked with these, these talent, and it really helped and, and showed on screen. There's uh, the issue of coming out as a gay man by, uh, played by in the role of um, Parker, played as uh, Chris in the movie. That's right. Yeah, you show it very beautifully. Uh, is it easy usually in the indigenous community to come out uh, uh, like that? With, with Chris's story and his arc, I drew on a lot of people in my community uh, experiences as a young man, not knowing your identity and your cultural identity as well. So we wanted to tell it in a way that was not so much about the labels, but more about what does your heart want and um, trying to surround yourself with people that um, are going through a similar struggle. Because, you know, there's, there's links to the First Nations community and LGBT community and the struggles yeah. that, uh, that are faced. So I think we wanted to tell it in a, in a different way. And then the, the undertone theme is, is identity in general, spiritual identity and, and the coming-of-age story told with some culture in there yeah, yeah, for once. Yeah. You know, yeah. It was really nice. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, our interpretation of it was ideally the way we'd love it to happen in real life. Yeah. 
and you say heart of the man if you just uh, look at uh, the initial uh, you know the the, the faster uh, layer of the movie it's about boxing a boxer's heart has to be tough and enduring and all that but also there's the heart of the man which is uh, the emotional side uh, the love and uh, uh, respect in the community and uh, being appreciated and accepted so those are two versions heart of a man maybe hearts of the man 100% yeah because you know when i when we came up with the title heart of the man it was kind of um you know you think of this this tough kind of you know uh, strong type of thing where in the film we really play on the, the vulnerability and you know that you can be different and still be strong although society may perceive a certain group of people as not being masculine or strong that's completely not true and vulnerability is a strength and that's very much a, a theme that I wanted to come through by the end of the film yes. um, so yeah exploring that in the realm of boxing and theater was a nice way to sort of show that masculinity and feminine femininity sort of blended in the middle what unexpected obstacles did you face during uh, production uh, uh, of this movie and uh, how did you overcome those obstacles Funnily enough, it's almost been two years since we, we finished filming because, um, you know, just the state of the industry and the strikes and things putting everything on hold for a long time. But when we were filming, we had the COVID peak in Queensland. So we were right in the middle of the highest COVID numbers for Queensland. We were a week in and um, one of our main cast had COVID, so we had to take 12 days off immediately. We also navigated the Brisbane floods during that time as well. Um, so those two um, really stretched out the production timeline and those two challenges yeah. um, were really, really tough. You know, transportation to and from set, access to locations, sickness, COVID, those two obstacles in themselves, yeah, they were very tough. Is there anything that would be surprising for people and... Uh whether it's behind the scene or in the content, uh, what's something about this film that might be surprising for people? I feel that uh, what may surprise people is that um, it is an independent film. However, it was very much a, a guerrilla film. Uh, believe it or not, when people watch it, we had days where we had four crew members. Uh, we had days where we didn't even run sound. There was days where, you know, um, we kind of, only had a few hours to shoot something that takes a few days. So the, the level at which we made the film um, might shock a few people in the Q&As at the premiere when we talk about just how little we did to, to capture what we have. So I think, you know, um, that's something I, I really want to share um, with everyone, that, that anyone can do it, no matter how independent your production is if you if you're passionate about it it can be done with little or no resource no, it's a very beautiful movie and as i said in the introduction it's premiering on the 28th of february in uh, brisbane will it screen nationally because i can't wait for this movie to come to melbourne where i'm based absolutely so we're starting with the uh, brisbane premiere and then we have some festivals locked in um and we will be doing some screenings interstate 
and uh, 100% in Melbourne. I think we may have a festival already locked in, and that will be uh, announced. As soon as they uh, lock in their schedule, we can let you know, and we'd love to come and see you guys in Melbourne. Yeah. Is there a website where people can learn more about the film and your work, uh, at least uh, as we await uh, the national availability of the movie? People can jump onto uh, Facebook or Instagram and search Heart of Men Film. There we'll have updates on premieres, screenings, behind the scenes, uh, new social media content. So yeah, Heart of the Man on Instagram and uh, Facebook, definitely the place to go. David Cook, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio. Thank you for having me. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to NITV Radio, coming to you from NAM on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. With the new school year underway, there is now increasing evidence that sticking with sport during school years is linked to greater academic success. With withdrawal rates from school sports, sport higher among girls, children from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds and from low socioeconomic backgrounds, it's hoped more can be done to promote sports participation. Samantha Benyak-Brooks reports. While the benefits of physical activity are widely understood, a new study reveals links between children's participation in sport and higher academic performance. Researchers at the University of Sydney followed the sports participation of over 4,000 children from across Australia, from four years of age to 13 years of age, and then matched this with their academic progress up to 21 years of age. The first-of-its-kind research shows children who take part in sport over the longer term are likely to see benefits including better NAPLAN and end-of-school results, greater attention and memory, lower absenteeism and higher chances of attending university. Lead author Dr Catherine Owen says the results show how important it is for children to participate in sports. Team sports really builds social connections um, and peer bonding and friendships, which are and like a really strong sense of belonging, which is really important for kids. And I think that's why those specific academic benefits come from team sports, because they're more motivated to go to school and they're more likely to want to go to school to see their friends. And um, just having that sense of belonging is so important for those specific outcomes. Despite the benefits being applicable across the board, Dr Owen reveals some members of the community are more likely to withdraw from sport. In our overall analysis, we found that 50% of kids continue playing sport throughout their childhood, 25% drop out, and another 25% don't participate at all. And we found that kids who were from, first of all, low socioeconomic status areas Um, culturally and linguistically diverse, and also girls were the least likely to continue participating. They were most likely to be in the non-participants or dropout. The Centre for Multicultural Youth in Victoria runs sport programs for young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds to build a sense of belonging and develop connections in the local community. CMY's initiative, the Centre for Multicultural Sport, aims to bridge the gap between the sporting world and Australia's multicultural communities by supporting organisations to be more inclusive. CM Sport Manager Simon Rudder has told SBS News the structure of Australia's sporting system creates a barrier to entry. They come from countries where sport's largely played informally um, and they come to this country where 
you know, to go join your local club, you have to train two nights a week. You have to pay a membership fee that goes to the state body, that goes to the national body. Um, there's, there's a rigid structure to the Australian sporting system. And that, um, you know, again, particularly with new and emerging communities having larger families, you know, that's a big impost on, on costs for young people. Dr Owen says sport may be seen as a less important activity for some families. For families who speak another language at home, um, sport may not be a priority for them. They have a lot of other stresses and priorities and things on their mind that they are focusing on and not so much on putting their kids into sport. And also may in their culture, it may not be as important to them. Mr Rodder believes more can be done to get migrant communities into sport. Their priority is education and so they don't see the benefits and I think that needs to be a community-wide education process, even in settlement services where um, families are, are explained about the benefits of being physically active, not only academically, but also for social connections, professional connections, to be able to build networks. Dr Owen adds the costs are also an issue for many. Sport can get very expensive, and especially with the cost of living going up these days, it becomes a lower priority for parents, and so they pull their kids out of sport because it's so expensive. Um Especially for young girls, they start losing interest. Girls especially, they want to play sports for fun. They want to be social. They want to connect with their friends. And when they start hitting adolescence, they kind of, there's not as many social fun options for them. Chief Executive of the New South Wales Office of Sport, Karen Jones, adds many girls struggle with body image issues. A universal barrier across all the life stages of women is that fear of feeling intimidated or embarrassed to actually exercise in public. And it's that fear of judgment that is the main barrier for girls and women. And that really comes down because of judgment around appearance, maybe judgment around ability, and also just life priorities and judgment around that as well. The study also highlights the specific benefits related to individual and team sports. Dr Owen examines these. We found for individual sports, it was more beneficial for NAPLAN literacy test results and ATAR results, whereas team sports were more beneficial for cognitive performance, so attention and memory. Um, Kids who played team sports were less likely to be absent from school and they're also more likely to complete their high school certificate. But Dr Owen suggests it's important a child is enjoying the activity they're in. There definitely are more benefits to team sports, but I think it's got to be what the child enjoys because if they're not enjoying it, they won't receive the same mental health benefits. It's hoped the research will add to general understanding around how educational environments can be tailored to promote sports participation that improves children's physical and mental health and educational success. Miss Jones says it's important girls are given the same opportunities as boys. It's not just about participation. It's about making sure we've got the right facilities for girls to participate. It's about making sure that we've got representation of females across all aspects of sport, whether that be as participants or athletes, through to coaches, through to officials, through to administrators. Mr Rodder says there's more to be done around understanding unconscious bias in sport 
and how it impacts representation of multicultural communities. We need to reflect our community better and and understand that when you're creating those safe cultural environments, a lot of it's to do with with you know um, images that you have around the sports club, um, programs you run, trying to you know reduce the amount of alcohol that's served, creating environments that are more welcoming to, to diverse communities. Dr. Owen notes it's vital young people stay active, even just for their general well-being. Schools making it more of a priority and placing more emphasis and importance on sports. Um, But then I think it's also got to be coming from the parents. There's got to be parental support and encouragement. Samantha Beniak-Brooks, SBS News. NITV Radio, on radio, online and mobile. And uh, that was uh, Kuri Man by uh, Warumpi Band uh, ending today's program. NITV Radio will be back on uh, Wednesday and Friday with more news and stories from right across the country. I am Bertrand Tungendame, thanking you for your company this Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.